0: to Breakthrough Chronicles where we hope to inspire, inform, encourage, educate, but ultimately motivate those of you who are watching and listening. And fittingly, and not surprisingly for those of you who know me and know my guest, he is the first guest here on Breakthrough Chronicles and and fitting for a lot of reasons, but maybe surprising those of you As to why, because he really embodies all the the philosophies, the qualities, and the principles that we hope to share here on Breakthrough Chronicles. And I'm talking about none other than my colleague and, more importantly, a very dear friend, one Eddie Johnson, the smooth shooter, joining us here on Breakthrough Chronicles. How are you, my man?
1: I'm doing well, and, you know, I've never been number one. I've always been, like, number five, number six. (laughs) You know, and uh, obviously I wore number eight most of my career in the NBA, so it feels good to be number one. I, I mean, no, no, Oscar num- Robertson was number one.
0: So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not sure either one of us will uh, will will vie or challenge one uh, Oscar Robertson, but that's another story for another day. But uh, for those of you that don't know, maybe if you're first time. Uh, listener here, and maybe the first encounter with, with Eddie Johnson and myself, K. Ray, 17 seasons in the NBA, played a season over in Greece, uh, former sixth man of the year in the NBA. But the, one of the things we'll we'll talk about here on Breakthrough Chronicles is, is we're not here to dispense statistics and break down a an athlete, both current and former, their career. We're here to talk about why they are where they're at today. Because if they are joining us, it's because they're successful, not just in you know the professional avenues of life, but just the personal avenues of life. And that's where the, the motivation and education will hopefully come in here. 17th season in the NBA, but now you can listen to him and watch him doing a wildly successful NBA radio show on Sirius XM entrepreneur, author, businessman. He's a father to two incredibly successful kids in their own right, and a husband to a beautiful wife who has her own successful venture. So it's safe to say the Johnson household is doing pretty well right now.
1: It took a while, though, right? I mean, it took a while uh, from a kid that got to the NBA, 22 years old, really didn't know what to expect. Uh, wasn't highly thought of, didn't have a guaranteed contract and had to fight his way and uh got married uh, as a 25-year-old uh and both of us young, trying to figure out what we're going to do. And now when we look back at it, we really appreciate the journey, man. And it's been a journey, K-Ray, it really has. A lot of ups and downs, a lot of frustrations, disappointments, all of that. But, that's what life's all about. And right now we're at a space and a place now where we feel comfortable in what we're doing. And now it's just about leaving stuff behind. And that's that's our goal right now as a family is just to create things and try to leave things behind for the benefit of others.
0: Well, let's go back uh, because you know, when when people will look on your bio, if they're on Wikipedia, they see Chicago, Illinois. And, you know, when people think of Chicago, they think, oh, windy city and, you know, this big, magnificent city. But it doesn't really tell the story. And, and because of where you were brought up in the Chicago area and how you were brought up, I think it's safe to say that all of those life lessons is what has allowed you to navigate all the challenges you've encountered since then. So you are the sixth of seven children mm-hmm. yep. raised by a single mother. So we're going to get to the single mother in just a moment because that is a remarkable feat. But just share with you, Will, the, to the audience, you know, where specifically in Chicago you grew up because we've seen and heard far too many stories of, you know, incredibly talented individuals and their lives cut short uh, because of the unfortunate violence that has taken place in that city. So take us back to those early days, Freddie Johnson.
1: Yeah, uh, well, as you said, I was the sixth uh, child in our household, and and uh, we grew up in Cabrini-Green. And people don't know who Cabrini-Green was or where it was in Chicago. It's one of the worst housing projects in the country. Uh, but we lived in it, and it didn't seem too bad to us. We were very connected, very together uh, as a neighborhood. Uh, when I ventured outside the house, my mom could be across the street then. That means that my mom's friend could treat me like I was a kid to keep us in check. Uh, but that area was not the best of areas. Obviously it was it was tucked into an area of Chicago where you could literally walk maybe four or five blocks and you're in, in the midst of homes that were going close to half a million to a million dollars. That's where that place was located. I could go another direction and be on Lake Michigan uh, within a span of about three blocks. So the area was pristine, but the neighborhood, the environment was not. And if people want to remember what Cabrini-Green was, if they can just look back at the show Good Times with JJ. Dino <laughs> Cabrini-Green. That was Cabrini-Green. And the biggest impact I had, K-Ray, was in 1969, and I was a 10-year-old, and I was standing on the corner, and I saw a tank roll by, and I'd never seen a tank before, but literally a tank rolled by. Wow, from, the, from was, the
0: U.S. military tank.
1: Yes, and that was the day after Martin Luther King was assassinated, and me as a young kid standing there looking up and seeing that Seeing National Guard located on each corner, telling us to go back in the house, automatic weapons. It was just one of the most surreal experiences that I've ever had. I didn't know much about Martin Luther King at the time. All I knew was I was watching my mom, my grandmother, my aunties, my sisters, who were a little bit older than me, just bawling and crying. And what it did, it spurred me to find out more about Martin Luther King and why this was so impactful. And as a young man, I started to ask questions and started to read up on it. And then I came to the understanding that's why they were upset. And that was very impactful for me because then I started listening to his speeches and the speech, I have a dream. And I, man, at one point in time in my life, I think I had it memorized. And I watched it over and over and over. And it spurred me to start dreaming, man, that one, hopefully we can get out of this neighborhood. And we did. Unfortunately, my grandfather passed away and that allowed us to move out of the, the Cabrini Green area. And it was a struggle, man. But I didn't see it too much, K-Ray, to be honest, when I was in Cabrini Green because I was so young. You know, and people aren't messing with young kids like that. But when I became a teenager and I moved to the west side of Chicago, and we were the second black family to move to that neighborhood. And for the first time, I was around whites. I had never been around whites other than school teachers or seeing the postman. That was it.
0: So your school, like in elementary school, it it, it was an all black school, all African-American school.
1: As a, as a, as a, when I, a kindergarten, first grade, second grade, yes. And then when I moved to uh the West side of Chicago, it was basically majority white. And wow. all of a sudden all my black friends turned into my white friends. And I started picking up different sports other than say basketball, kickball. I started picking up street hockey. I started picking up actually playing baseball and, And uh, then finally picked up a basketball. And, And so, and running around and hanging out with now white kids instead of black kids. And so what that told me is at that time, my mom did a great job of raising me because I didn't have any fear. Like I didn't have any assumptions. I didn't have any reservations or anything because that wasn't taught in my family. And so when I did though, started experiencing it was when this started to change from whites moved out and from blacks moved in mixed neighborhood. And all of a sudden the separation started and not being able to go into certain neighborhoods, being chased out, uh, being attacked. And this is happening as a little, as a teenager. And this is when I started to understand that, okay, this, this city is very well separated. And, and that's when the learning process started for me.
0: Yeah, it's interesting you, you go back to that moment as a 10-year-old, as you say, seeing those tanks. And safe to say that that was maybe the, the first fork in the road for you as, as a young man. Because, And I say that because you said you were inspired. It, it allowed you to start dreaming as you found out more about Martin Luther King. Far too often we see the opposite reaction, which is anger. Mm-hmm. And and talk about the role that your mother played in kind of shepherding you through that and educating you along with your other siblings.
1: Yeah, well, I had restrictions. Like, I could not cross a uh, big street. Uh, I could not venture not far from our environment where we were. Uh, it was just, she had her hands on me. And, and if I did something, I paid a price. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> in a, it's world, you know, <laughs> you can't put a belt to a kid. Well, I'm I, familiar I had, with that price. <laughs> right. I had a few belts put to me and she just taught me to always be careful, uh, be respectful and just make sure that your head's always on a swivel and paying attention to your environment. And, at times, you just couldn't help it. You found yourself in the midst of a situation where I've been blessed to get out of. I walked right into a gang meeting as a 10-year-old, didn't know I was there, ticked them off, they jumped. You know, uh, it's just stuff like that uh, that you go through. But she was always there to protect me. And my brothers and sisters were always there to protect me. And that, that was my saving point, was my older brothers and sisters. Like, right. they protected me to no end.
0: When you hear the phrase mama's boy, you know, a lot of guys will, will tend to kind of shy away from that. But mm. I, I think it's safe to say, and this is where you and I have, you know, just another similarity. Uh, we, we wear that like a, a badge of honor because of what our, our mothers mean to us. If you, and you've shared a little bit already, but just what has she meant to you? What, what did she mean in those early years? And what does she continue to mean? To you, your brothers and sisters, uh, I hear you talk about her often, um, and and I know that that she is still the rock, the foundation, the core of your family.
1: Yeah, I just turned ninety four years old, and wow, uh, you know, look, she 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 just showed us by example, right? First and foremost, the first example she showed me, and I was oblivious to it because I didn't know. Was that she decided to have number six. Like she didn't have to. She was in an environment that was a struggle. Like she was really on one salary. Uh, you know, and so because of that, you know, bringing number six into the family, that had to be a stress, especially after I got there because they nicknamed me Piggy because I ate so much. <laughs> so, you know, she probably looked at me sideways and like, hmm. You know, but no, she decided to bring number six in, man. And and that said a lot about her character, that if she was going, she didn't want to get pregnant. But obviously she got in, in, into something that she shouldn't have, obviously, in the relationship. And she shouldn't have done it. But she wasn't going to give it up. She wasn't going to walk away from it. And, and to me, that's why I try to do anything I can for her, because there's no way I would be here if it wasn't for that, for her to do it. And then getting up. Working in the post office as many years as she did, getting up three in the morning, you know, making sure we were ready for school first, had our stuff laid out for us, uh, food kind of almost pre-cooked. And then she had to get on a bus and then go go to work every day. Uh, that right there just just epitomized, you know, what I saw in her and what I felt that I had to reward her with by me just being a good kid, by me just doing the right thing. Uh, not knowing I would be here where I am right now, but just knowing that I would not be that hindrance uh, for her. Yeah,
0: and, and you go back to talking about those pre-cooked meals, I mean, keep in mind for for our listening and viewing audience, that was before, you know, microwaves. That was before some of the the easy to to fix meals that we all enjoy today. So you manage to navigate your way through that. You work your way into an incredibly successful high school basketball career. You ultimately head to the University of Illinois. Talk about that experience and then having achieved what you did there, now being in the Basketball Hall of Fame at the University of Illinois, but maybe more importantly, becoming the first family member to to walk off a of campus with a diploma. What did, that, what did that mean to you at the time, and what did it mean to your mom at the time?
1: Yeah, it's been a lot, man. And, and i just quickly go back to my high school where I decided to go to Westinghouse High School. My brother was, a, was one of the top high school players in the nation, and he went to Austin High School. Austin High School was exactly right across the street from where we lived. And a lot of people were like, man, why are you going, why are you going to Westinghouse? House? I mean, your brother made a name over there. Follow your brother. And, right. and all the people were trying to get me to go there. But what they didn't know was that I didn't like swimming. And I didn't want to swim. And, <laughs> and at Austin High School, you had no choice but to swim. And I blame it on my brother. Because when I was a young kid, they threw me in a pool 20 feet and said, get out. And I didn't get out.
0: And I, That's the I, proverbial I, sink or swim.
1: Yeah, that was the wrong lesson, right? <laughs> and so I was adverse to swimming. And so I went to Westinghouse, a vocational school, uh, following this path, almost got cut my freshman year. They kept <clears> me because they felt like if I had a good pedigree, I would develop. And I developed. I went from almost getting cut my freshman year to being starting starting on varsity within four months later. So, And then it just grew from there. I obviously decided to, to go to University of Illinois amongst every school that recruited me. Uh Thought it was the right decision to get away from Chicago, be close enough where my mom can come see me play and my family. And I was happened to be over in Germany when I decided to go. I was traveling uh, around the country. I had made second-team parade All-American, so went to the parade uh, All-Star game. And then a group of us was chosen to go to the Albert Schweitzer game in germany and on that team at the time was uh darnell valentine tremendous player out of kansas tommy baker who went to indiana had a very good career uh pete butko went to north carolina uh jeff lamp who went to virginia and then most importantly urban magic johnson okay so we were over there playing and i had pretty much decided between three schools DePaul, because I love Ray Meyer, but as I told Ray at the time, I just don't want to stay in Chicago and and a lot of my high school teammates went to the was gonna to go to DePaul and I was like, you know what, I just need to move on and just, you know, and, and learn to mature. So I chose between DePaul, uh Michigan State, uh well, well wherever magic went, to be quite honest. Either Michigan or Michigan State. And then right. uh Iowa. Because I, I love Lou Lowell. And so uh, I finally was on the road uh, in Germany. Tony Yates, who's assistant coach for Illinois, he called me up. Come on, Eddie, what are you going to do? I mean, what are you going to do? And Tony Yates, obviously, you know, an African American coach, I looked at him as a father figure. And that's what won me, that's what won him over, won me over with him. This guy, I looked at him as a father figure. I loved the way that he talked to me, the way he spoke to me. So I told my mom while I was in Germany, I said, look, I know you're going down there to represent me because uh, I think I got player of the year. And so she had to go down to Champaign, which where Illinois is located, to pick up the trophy. It was a banquet. She was going to speak in my honor. And I said, oh, by the way, why don't you just tell them that I'm coming to Illinois?
0: And, <laughs> oh, by the way.
1: <laughs> yeah. And that blew her away. She was happy about it. And uh, she got up there, a lady that rarely would speak in front of audiences. I still have the I still have the uh, the paper, the news clipping from it. And she got up there, man, and she spoke and she told them in a tremendous way that I was coming there. And so, yeah, that's how I got to Illinois. And I promised her. I said, I'm not just going to be a basketball player. I'm going to be the first in this family to get a degree. And uh, lo and behold, I was. And uh, to me, it was a special degree because it was a degree that could hopefully lead me to law school. And unfortunately, when I got to the league, I was just playing too much. And I I gave up that idea quickly.
0: Yeah, but again, something that that a lot of people may not know is that was your intent to pursue a law degree. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, it was. I had already uh, studied. I was studying for the LSAT uh, my senior year. University of Illinois attached a professor to me uh, that because they wanted to make an example out of me, uh, and so I worked with him. Uh, he helped me with my thesis, at, you know, my history degree to graduate. Uh, it just, man, it, I just had so much help at that school, uh, but not the kind of help where they were doing my work. It was the kind of help where they were pushing me and 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 knocking me along and. And I'm still good friends with a lot of my teachers. Art Goldsmith was my economics teacher. Still very good friends with he and his wife and their family. And, yeah, so they, I left there, man, and I was all set. Uh, if I wanted to come back, uh, take the LSAT, I was going to get into Illinois Law School. And I studied it for a summer. Coddleton Simmons, man, played me. I knew I okay – I'm going to tell you when I knew that I couldn't. My second year in the league. When Cotton Fitzsimmons played me four straight games of 48 minutes. I knew I was. There's no way. I'm like, right. I will not have the energy <clears throat> to do this. And so, yeah, he played 48 minutes, man, in four straight games. And I was ready to go to fifth game until one of the Cisco coaches said, come on, Cotton. Get a gap Almost right. unheard
0: of in today's game.
1: <laughs> no, yeah, unheard of. Unheard of.
0: 29th pick uh, for the for the Suns. And let's go back, though, in 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 those early high school days and even those early days at the University of Illinois, you, you talked about, you know, getting close to being cut. How did you navigate those early obstacles and challenges? And, and who did you, aside from your family, who did you lean on? Who were some of the people that that helped you get through those periods in your life?
1: Yeah, you know, I think all of us at one point in time, you know, we tend to maybe want to quit, right, because we don't know. And eighth grade was that time for me. And the coach's name was Mr. Root. And, you know, I'm gangly, tall, clumsy, you know, just figuring out this game of basketball and out of shape. And I remember he put us on the line for suicides, man. And I started running. We started running. And, man, I was like I was running into quicksand. I mean, it was the most hilarious thing you ever want to see. And and I was embarrassed by it. Without a doubt, I was. Uh, and so because of that, you know, I decided I went home that night and I told my mom, I'm like, I don't play basketball. Because baseball was my first love, to be quite honest. I mean, I thought I was a much better baseball player than a basketball player. And I was like, I don't want to play. But it so happened I came from a basketball family, and they weren't gonna allow that to happen. You never seen a six-six third baseman. You know, they they would just say all these things. <laughs> so I had made up my mind I was gonna quit. I showed back up to school. I missed the morning practice. Wasn't there. And he saw me. The coach. He said, Why well, don't you at practice this morning? I was like, Coach, I don't think that's for me. And he looked at me. He's like. Let me tell you something. He said, you worked harder than anybody in there. That's why you were tired at the end. And as I looked at him. I'm like, what? He said, you ran harder in practice than anybody. And you were so gassed that at the end, when you all ran sprints, I knew you would be fatigued. But guess what? You didn't quit. So have your butt in practice this afternoon. And that's all I needed. And when I showed up, we played, and I got to Westinghouse High School, and I was still gangly, still trying to play this game. My coach, Roy Condotti, walked up to me and said, you know what? Normally I would cut somebody. But he says, I see something in you. Just pass your brother. And I was like, okay. He said, I just want you to work hard. I want you to keep your nose clean. I want you to just pay attention to detail. That's all I want from you, and I promise you I will improve you. I'm telling you, from being cut almost, I was starting on varsity with seniors, with juniors and seniors, four months later. I mean, it was was the biggest transformation, man. It's like, it just out of nowhere. And I grew from like six to, I was like six foot, and I grew to about six, four and a half, six, five. I mean, it was the most amazing thing. But I think for me, K-Ray, it was more so my dad had basically just left my life. And, and I think that was part of it. I think that, you know, he, he just, you know, he, you know, he just walked away. And so because of that, I had an anger in me that wanted to prove everybody wrong. And I think all that combination just enhanced me, man. And it just blew me up. I mean, I went from being almost being cut to being like making all state my sophomore year. It's like it just and then my junior year, you know, number one player in the state, and my senior year, number one player. Like it just, it just blew up, man. And it's just amazing when you have people leading you and pushing you to do it.
0: Yeah, it it almost you know the way you describe it, it's almost like an oxymoron. Um, you know, it, it's positive anger versus yeah. the the negative anger. So it, it, as we recount that, it becomes almost a a second moment. In your life, as we go back and think about that Martin Luther King experience that you talked about, a a fork in the road, you chose the positive side. You Mm -hmm. chose to dream and be inspired. And another indication here was that was that a moment where you kind of looked back and went, "Wow, like you know, the, the answer was right in front of me. You just needed that little nudge, that little that voice coming from your coach to to tell you." what you're capable yeah. of.
1: Yeah, because I wasn't getting that. I would get it from my brothers, but at that point in time, they went to their own life. My oldest brother, he had gone to the military. Uh, then my brother that was very good at basketball, he was immersed in what obviously he was trying to accomplish and that, get his scholarship, and he did. He went to Texas A&M, uh, and so they were too immersed in that. And then my other brother, my closest brother, uh, you know, he was the one that was really the one on the edge in the family, getting in trouble, uh, running with gangs, uh, being involved with drugs. And so even though he was my closest brother and he was the one that taught me how to read and the one that really loved on me, uh, no one could put their hands on me in the family. He would protect me at all times. Uh, it was hard to really communicate with him because of the things that he was getting into. So I was left really to my mom and my grandma and my sisters. And so eventually it turned out I was raised by women and they pushed me, man. They fought for me. My sister was my bodyguard. I can't even count the number of fights, man, where guys would pick on me because (laughs) of my height and try to bully me and she kicked their butt. Like, it was just like, it it, it, it was the most unbelievable thing, man. I was so protected as a as an individual uh with my family uh it was just amazing
0: yeah it's it's funny you say that because oftentimes you know our our siblings will will provide insight and information but there's always that part of us that will will tune it out sometimes and yeah. and you need you know you need another voice you need to hear it from somebody else but ultimately you you fall back to yeah the people closest to you, the, the people around you, knowing that they have your best interest at, at, at heart. Right. <clears throat> you, you get to the University of Illinois and, and just talk about that, that college experience and how it, and the coach there, Lou Henson, how, how he sets you up for or prepared you mentally and physically for the rigors of the NBA.
1: Yeah, I went to Illinois, man. I was like, you know, as again, as I told you earlier, Parade All-American. I was the number one player in the state of Illinois. <clears throat> Everybody was ticked at me that I went to Illinois. They wanted me to go to DePaul. Uh, and the year later, Mark Aguirre, who was my teammate at Weston House, he went there, Skip at Bernard Randolph, and those DePaul teams back in the day were very good. Uh, but I needed to get away. I needed to leave. I needed to leave Chicago but stay close enough to home. If it wasn't for my mother, I would have probably gone to USC. That was another school that I was interested in. And But I decided to go there. And the first day I got there, right, you know, 185 pounds. I'm playing open gym with the, all the guys that were still, you know, on the team. And they laughed at me. Like, they were like, he was number one? He, I mean, like... Because right. I was I wasn't strong enough. They were yeah. knocking the stew out of me, man. Like when you go from high school to college, I mean, there was some grown ass men, man. And oh, well, it is back in the was, day
0: when you played four years. They, there yes. there was not any one and done.
1: Yes, they were knocking me around, <laughs> kicking my butt. And I remember my freshman year practice, uh, man. Like, if I was open and I had my feet set, it was money. I mean, they already knew. They they knew automatically when when they saw me shoot, they knew I was the best shooter in in on that team. Okay, and one of the best shooters in the country. But as Lou Henson told me, he said, "Eddie, <laughs> man, you hell of a shooter, and I'm so glad to have you." But I can't, you know, it's hard to do what you do when you're on your back all the time. <laughs> okay, Ray, I'm tell you something. He said that in front of the team. Okay. And that was, man, like I never thought about transferring anything like that. But that's the only time that I thought about it because I didn't understand why he did what he did. So I did not understand it. And so for me, I thought it was personal. And I remember going back to my dorm, calling home, crying, being ticked off, and like, I'm out of here. I'm you know, and you're really not going anywhere. You're not going anywhere. And so, you know, after I calmed down and everything, you know, I showed back up to practice. But I left, I got to practice met two hours earlier. And I first went to the weight room. And the coach's name was Coach Crow. I said, Coach, I will live in this weight room from this day out. I said, hold me to it. I will live in this weight room. Because he was in the gym when he heard it. I said, I will live here. So before practice, I will be lifting with you. After practice, I got to do something. I will lift. I will not go back to Chicago when the season is over. I will stay down here, and I will live in the weight room. And that's exactly what I did. I had no life, man. I had no life in high school, to be quite honest. I went to one dance in high school. I never went out. I practiced at 7 in the morning, and we practiced at 6 at night. I was so protected by my coaches and everything to keep me away from gangs. And that was all of us, to keep us out of harm's way. I didn't have a life. And when I went to Illinois, I still didn't have a life. I was very uh, aloof. I was always to myself. And I think people took it the wrong way. And it got worse. At the end of my freshman year, sophomore year, I didn't do anything but work out. I showed back up my sophomore year. I show back up at 225, boarding on 230, ripped, 2% body fat. Neil Bresnahan was the guy that was always knocking me around, strong white guy to Fenwick in Chicago, one of my good friends, love him to death, Levi Cobb, another guy, Ken Ferdinand. They were, they were the ones that were laughing at me and knocking me around. I kicked their ass every day, <laughs> every day. <laughs> I made it a point to whoop their butt every day. Right. And Lou Henson walked up to me about maybe three games into the season. And he walked up to me. He said, Eddie, I thought you was a – I'm not going to say the word, but it was one of them real bad words. He said, you will never come out of a game the rest of your career here because you earned it. And I never did. He said the only time you come out of a game is if you tell me you're tired. And he held true to his word, man. I'm not kidding. I I, I just played, and I might sub myself out every now and then, but he never subbed me out unless I was in foul trouble.
0: <laughs> Another moment in your life where you you thought you were working hard yeah. until you were shown like that. This this is what hard work is and will be in order for you to be successful.
1: Exactly. Yeah, man. And that's why, you know, obviously Lou passed away a few years ago. I miss him dearly. Uh, you know, I talk to his wife all the time uh, when I can. She's still here, Mary Henson. And so, no, that man, that man right there, he is the main reason why I survived Cotton. Like, he's the main reason. See, Cotton might have thought that he was the reason. No, no. Lou Henson was the reason. He humbled me, man. He humbled an All-American, a guy that was thought of as one of the top players in the country, did not play me much as a freshman. Everybody was trying to get me to transfer, okay, and leave there. Mark Aguire, who was going to follow me to Illinois, decided not to go because of what he saw Lou do to me. That's what he thought. And and you know what? I told Mark, I said, no, Mark, you're making a mistake, dude. He's grooming me. But I understood why Mark went to DePaul, and he made the right choice. He became right. you know, college player of the year there and the number one pick in the NBA draft. So he made the right choice. But, no, I knew what Lou was doing. I knew why I had to fight this out. And he got me prepared, man, without a
0: doubt. Yeah, it's one of those situations where I I like to say a a setback that sets you up. Sets you Mm -hmm. up for success or sets you up for potentially taking the easy way out, which ultimately is, you know, is is failure. So incredibly successful collegiate career. You go on to the NBA, 17 seasons. Just talk about those – the challenges that you encountered both as – as a rookie, and then as you got older, a veteran, you know, you you experience different kind of challenges. And I think as we all learn through life, just when you think you've got it all figured out, you get curveballs thrown at you. So how and, and who uh, got you through those those times in the NBA?
1: Yeah, I got obviously I got drafted. I didn't have any guarantees. Uh, when I got drafted, man, I left the draft in Chicago. I went to Chicago Bulls headquarters. I got back on the bus and went back to work. Like uh, Mark Aguirre and Isaiah Thomas, two childhood friends that grew up with me, they both got in their Mercedes and drove off. <laughs> okay? I mean, that's where I was. That's where I was uh, in my mindset as a basketball player. I wasn't 100% sure that I would accomplish my dream. I knew that I was going to put the work in but I just didn't know. And so right. I went back to work, man. And so over the period of that off season, started having communication with the Kansas City Kings, who drafted me number twenty nine. Uh, knowing I didn't get a guaranteed deal. So I show up there, uh, for my rookie camp. Curtis Berry, uh big strong, you know, uh forward played at University of Missouri. You should probably remember who he was. He played Stefanovich and Oh yeah, and we're we're in the camp together, and uh, I just I went right at him, went right at him, tried to abuse him, went right at him. Like the one thing my family taught me, man, like I, I wasn't going to be out there game banging and all that. But I had a lot of fights in my career uh, in my young age. I did. I had to fight. I wasn't proud of it uh got my butt kicked a number of times but i kicked a lot of butt and i fought though i mean and i once fought a kid for one week because he kept kicking my butt i said you're gonna keep kicking my butt till i get the best of you dude that's just how it's gonna be he finally relented man and just said man just hit me <laughs> he said you crazy i said "No, I'm not. i said i'm relentless man and so for me I went at guys, man. I didn't have that guaranteed deal, K-Ray. I tried to punish anybody I could. I went after every rebound, everything. And I remember, man. I remember this like some things in your life you just remember. I remember like playing so well in a scrimmage in my in the rookie camp. Like I turned, and it's almost like God told me, Eddie, just turn to your right and look. Man, Cotton was staring at me like I was like some lost, long kid. (laughs) I mean, like, the, the way he was looking at me, it was with so much love and admiration. I will never forget that look. And I remember he turned to his son, Gary Fitzsimmons, who's assistant coach, and he said, we got a real one here. And I remember him saying that. He didn't know that I heard it. But I could okay. see he said it. Man, that's all I need to do. I'm telling you, man, that's all I needed, man. And I just, man, I just said, Eddie, you got this. And that, that situation there with Cotton, man, seeing that and hearing him say that was all the motivation I needed.
0: As you talk about this, and I'm sure as you have reflected at different times in your life, while you may not have had a... A singular father figure. You have had multiple father figures, and mm-hmm. and hearing that story about getting the you know, look like like all of us, we're all seeking approval of mm-hmm. some type from someone, right? So mm-hmm. getting that approval from Lou, getting that approval from Cotton, and what that meant for you, both, you know, professionally at that time, but but what it mean for you personally? To, to be able to, to take that back with you.
1: Accomplishment, man. I mean, where I came from, man, seriously. Right. You know, it's uh, times in my life, really, seriously, and this is for real because you start thinking about it, getting a little emotional about it. It's times where I should not even be here. Like, seriously.
0: Well, you and I have had this discussion before yeah. about, you know, those moments in life when you look back and think, wow, it, you know, it could have ended. Very differently.
1: I I'm telling you, uh, it just—I know that God was guiding me. I had, it, without a doubt, I am. I'm, look, I've been shot at, bullets missed. I've been robbed at gunpoint. I wasn't doing anything. I've been robbed at gunpoint. Uh, a gang once had us on a wall, execution style, and told us if, if they're going to shoot us, if we don't promise to come to the game. I just didn't come out of the house for a month, like. And finally, my brothers got to them gang members. I don't want to even go into detail what probably happened, but they stopped bothering me. And and it's, it's, I had a policeman come to our house. We thought somebody's breaking into our home. I'm running down the stairs to let the police in. This young twenty-something-year-old puts a gun to my head, and it clicks. Like you can just see it almost click, and like it's stuff like that walking down the street with my then girlfriend, three guys walking down an alley, and something said, Eddie, back up and look down the alley. I backed up and looked, and they're running down the alley with guns out because they were going to rob us, so I looked at her, so you better kick them shoes off and ran right back across the street. It's just <laughs> stuff like that, man. So for me, man, there's it, it it's so, it's so many guys that didn't get through that. Like, you know, Ben Wilson, who was obviously a a great, well-known figure in in the state in in Chicago, lost his life in a situation like that. He's the number one player in the country. So it's just, man, when when I look back at that, man, and then all the people that jumped in my life to help guide me and keep and steer me and keep me online and weren't yes men, they were no men to just make sure I stayed humble, man, without a doubt, man. I mean, we all have testimonies, but man, my testimony to me is unreal.
0: That's pretty powerful stuff. You know, with that in mind, talk about the the importance, especially for, for some of our younger listeners and viewers, just talk about the importance of, of mentorship, because we, especially as men, you know, this, I know this, we tend to be stubborn, you know, and, and think that mm-hmm. we can, figure it out ourselves but just for you well, you've already you know recounted a number of times but just share the importance of mentorship and i mean here you are today at your age and and you know you still have people that you consider mentors and just express to uh, to those listening and watching the importance of it and and the value personally and professionally
1: you can't make it unless you have people to help guys you just can't. My high school coach told me, he said, you're not going to see daylight for four years. Now, imagine telling a kid that. A kid that wants to have fun uh, and all, and do all the little fun things. He said, Eddie, you're not going to see daylight for four years. That's how we do it here. I so, was like, how does that happen? You will be at practice at 7 in the morning, which means you're up in dark to go get to school. Sometimes I'll pick you up. Sometimes I won't. You have to get on the bus. And then after school, you're going to show up in that gym as soon as class is over, and you're not going home until it's 6 o'clock, and it's going to be dark. And guess what? He, he was true to his word, and he's right about the dark, because <laughs> our school was a converted candy factory. We didn't have many windows. <laughs> so we didn't see much sunlight. So he was true to that, and it helped prepare me. Now, I go to Illinois, boom. I'm in a regimen, I already know now that I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna give in to the temptation of hanging out at campus parties and do all that. I'm gonna stay focused. And when I got in the league, I did the same thing, okay? One of the weirdest situations I ever experienced when I first got in the league. Now understand, I grew up around a brother that lost his life at 25 years old uh, because of drugs, okay? And probably because of sharing needles at that time, HIV uh, wasn't obviously a known sickness and a disease back then. Right. But that's probably what he died from at 25 years old. And so, you know, so when when I when I got to school and I got out of there, then I got to the league, I was already like, in, you know, seeing parties in school and drugs are out on the table and I'm sitting there watching the game and I'm not even paying attention to them. And when I got in the league, I walked into a veteran's room. And I can say his name now because he's gotten in trouble with drugs. And I I haven't spoken to him, but I hope he's doing well. Hawkeye Whitney. And Hawkeye was sitting on his bed. And he had some contraption in his hand. I don't know what the hell it was. And he said, come on over here, rookie. Come on over here and sit down, man. Have some fun with me. And I looked at him. I said, Hawkeye, whatever that is, I don't want anything to do with it, bro. So I was sent to pick you up because they're going out because I was a rookie. They send the rookies to do everything. And I said, I'm out. I'm out. And, like, that education from my father figures and the people that guided me, if they didn't do what they did, I probably would have sat down and given in to peer pressure. So, I mean, along the lines, man, I, I still have father figures to this day, and I'm 64. I still have people that I love their advice. Like Garfield, heard one of the greatest Phoenix Suns players ever. When he talks, I listen. Like he doesn't know this, and I've never really told him this, but when he talks, I listen. I love being around him. Like the the way he the his, the way he carries himself, how he talks, that really like I need that still, even at 64. Right. You know. And so for me, it doesn't matter how old you are. You could be younger than me. If I believe that you you have an old soul, Kevin Johnson was like that. Kevin Johnson used to keep me up late at night, man, in training camp. And he used to talk, man. Like, talk, talk, talk. It drives me nuts. But, I mean, it was so impactful for me to be able to have him as a teammate. And so, for me, man, I've always grabbed that, you know, because I know it shapes me and it keeps me online. <laughs>
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, to further the point on, on shaping um, it, it is clearly all these lessons uh, have created a, a, I guess fearlessness is maybe the, the best way to put it because, you know, it would have been easy in some regards. You you have a incredibly successful 17 year NBA career, right? But then you shortly thereafter retiring, you jump into broadcasting, a completely new field for you. And you you brought in a mentality much like you did and because of those lessons as a freshman at Illinois or maybe even a freshman at, in, in high school of, I don't know this, but I want to learn it. Again, an important lesson for, for people because of their, their stubbornness sometimes thinking they do know everything. But just the importance of that mentality for you and how it sets you up for success here. Now, 20-plus years, you've been a broadcaster longer than you were an NBA player, but mm-hmm. those early years of being willing to listen, absorb, and learn. Just re- recount some of those.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, I think the education that I had early on was like Eddie. Somebody once told me, they said, look, you got a segue to everything. And and that's what I try to do with my life is try to segue. I don't try to sit down and think, okay, I know this. I try to study it first. <laughs> I try <laughs> to, like, be ready for it because I don't want to, like, sound dumb. And so, for me, uh I was very talkative as a player, obviously. I wasn't that way all the time, believe it or not. I know it might blow you away and anybody else, but I was very quiet. I, was, I didn't start really talking until I was probably – 25 years old. I'm when I tell you, quiet, quiet. (laughs) And sometimes if you catch me, and you probably have at times where I will go into this sullen, this sullen mood where I'm not as talkative around people I don't know. And so for me, I still have a part of that. uh, But my wife, Joy, saw it. And it bothered her because she felt that I was missing out on opportunity. And so she kept pushing me. When we first got married, you gotta get out there. You gotta talk more. You just too damn quiet. You gotta, <laughs> and i like, and I started to do it.
0: So we've got Joy oh, to thank it. for all this. <laughs>
1: oh yeah, oh yeah. I started to do it, man. And like now she tells me to shut the heck up. <laughs> you know, so. But yeah, man, I was, I was, man, I wasn't an introvert. I mean, if I knew you, I would talk and have fun with you. But if I was in an environment where I didn't know the people, they, they would not hear a peep out of me. I'd just be observant because a lot of times maybe because I didn't think I was smart enough to jump into what they were talking about. Right. And so I had to listen to what they said and I'd go behind them and I'd go study what they were talking about. And then if we had a conversation the next time, then I would talk about it. So I think it was more so like insecurity maybe a little bit and why I was quiet because I never talked in school. I never, unless I was talking trash or just (laughs) acting a little silly, but in regards to asking the teacher questions or something like that, I was never that kid, never, always quiet.
0: You know, social media is, is a great tool. It can benefit us and has benefited us in so many ways, but I think it also... Um, allows people to create assumptions. You know, they they see your profile, for example, and they see, oh my gosh, you know, Eddie Johnson, so successful, you know, broadcaster, uh, NBA radio, Suns TV, entrepreneur, all this. But through those assumptions, they, they don't know and understand the stories that you have, lived and experienced. And one that I know still resonates with you, you will talk about it from time to time, but the case of mistaken identity and how all those lessons early on in your life helped you get through that, uh, the mentorship, the the people around you just, if you can, you know, try to recount that moment back in I believe it was 2006 mistaken identity. And, And it wasn't just like, Oh, I, you know, just some small incident. It was something significant and one that you had to battle through for a while, right?
1: Yeah, without a doubt, without a doubt. Uh, And, you know, look, I I felt that me having a 17 year NBA career, uh, me getting into broadcasting, uh, being an analyst for the Phoenix Suns, being in demand for people that wanted to talk to me and, and hear my opinion, I felt, Like, okay, maybe I've made it, right? Yeah, I've arrived. Yeah, you're never going to arrive in this life. There's always going to be some people that's going to doubt you, some people that don't know you, uh, and they're going to have an opinion of you. And then if they see something happen, they're going to jump on it because they probably wanted to say that all along, or they were waiting for something to happen, and they could never get you, right? And uh, I would use an example like, Ie. LeBron right now. Like people are always trying to find something to get him right. on, and they can't find it. Other than, oh, he's just, uh, you know, he he's just uh, passive aggressive, or he's just this is that, right? But it's nothing like he's done. And for me, I'm in Hawaii. Like I'm in Hawaii, man, with my family on vacation, having a good time, and I land. Back in Phoenix, and I noticed, I looked at my phone, and trust me, I don't I don't get a ton of text messages and calls. I had, like, maybe 60 text messages. I had, like, maybe 40 or 50 missed calls. And I'm like, what the heck? And so I'm like, I don't know what's going on. And then I get a call from, obviously, you know, one of my best friends in the entire world, Mike Woodson. And Woody was like, "You okay?" I'm like, "Why? What? What? What do you mean? I'm okay. Yeah. We just we just got back from Hawaii. But you sure? What, what? What? And and he said, "You you don't know what's going on?" I said, "No, not at all." So by this time, I put the luggage in the car and everything, and and so I, I turn I get in, and I, he said, well, you need to turn the radio on." So I turned on the radio and, you know, and I turned, I always listen to Jim Rome. So Jim Rome is on and I'm hearing this guy, I'll say his name in a second, this guy saying, Oh, Phoenix Suns. I I can't understand. How could they have somebody like that in under their employment? And I just can't believe nobody knew he was, he was a pedophile. And, and he was this, and, and this is just unconscionable. I mean, he's really, he's, he's attacking young kids. I'm like, and then he said my name, you know, Eddie Johnson, I cannot believe that. I mean, how could the league just let this sneak by? I mean, I, I mean, this had to be something. I'm like, what? And then I turn on some other stuff. There's some other people call me and it's like, yeah, Eddie Johnson, he's played for the Hawks. He. He got arrested, cause he, uh, you know, he he was, uh, you know, involved with a young young kid. I was like, what? And then all of a sudden, I'm looking at my email. I'm getting death threats. I mean, it was like in a span of like now an hours, I didn't figure this thing out. Right. I mean, all like all I could do was just put my head down, man, and cry. It was like, how am I gonna get out of this? Right. No, this is not me but also knowing that it could be some crazy animal out there that now wants to go, you know, do something to me. Right. And that's what, that's what made it difficult, man. Uh, in that regard. So I immediately went home, locked my doors. <laughs> I like, I ain't going out the house. <laughs> and, and all of a sudden then my, you know, people that know me started getting a hold of these different entities and telling them that not, it's not me, but skip Baylor. And for people like, on Twitter, I know they see me always go at him. This is why I go at him, because he knew who I was. This dude covered the NBA. He covered basketball, and yet he didn't do his homework. Mm-hmm. They said Auburn. He knew I didn't go to Auburn. They said 6'2". He knew I was six seven, six eight. But yet, in his exuberance, to get the story out, to maybe get a pat on the back from Jim Rome we were filling in for. Because you see how he is now. You see that's what he does. He goes for the shock factor. He wanted to be the first to rip me. Man, I never forgive that dude for this. Never. Ever. Ever. I mean, it's like, do your homework, dude. That's right. all I said, you know, yes, to Eddie Johnsons, yes, he's gotten in trouble in the past, I get it, but then do your homework, and he didn't the Chicago Tribune didn't do their homework, almost didn't do their homework. They were a few minutes away from running a huge story on me with my picture good, good for them that they didn't bad for me in a sense because I already gotten the vitriol, but bad for me because I've been a very, very rich man <laughs>
0: <laughs> right,
1: so yeah. It it you know and like I said, it straightened itself out to a point. It's still to this day, people make the mistake. Uh right. to this day, uh people still putting my picture up instead of his. Uh and it's unfortunate. Uh and you know, some people pay the price for it. I can tell you that. Skip but Bayless paid the price for it. Truly did. And uh but money is not the the, the band-aid in this situation uh, like I said I had over two million hits on my website
0: well I was gonna say there you know money is one thing but the value on a person's name you you can't really place a a true value especially in a situation uh, situation like that
1: yeah you're right and and it's, it's, like I said it, it you know I mean I got, I got my health man and I, I I don't too much worry about that anymore but I think it set me back. I think it maybe cost me a job or two. I, I think sometimes I feel like it cost me a national opportunity because it's right. not the fact that they knew it wasn't me, but the fact that my name would bring association to him and maybe they didn't want to deal with the, the, the repercussions of people- Having to explain it constantly. Him. Yeah, I truly yeah. believe it. I, I, I truly believe it in my heart because up up before then, I was up for jobs like that. Like I was working for NBC. I was doing you know the NBA pregame show. I was filling in. I was doing stuff like that for TNT. You know, it just kind of blended. Phone call away. stop. Yeah,
0: they lost our game uh, as my TV partner on uh, Suns television broadcasts in these final few minutes. If you can, just share for our. Our listeners, the viewers, uh, the the importance of betting on yourself and dealing with the you know sure to be moments of of doubt and and setback and and fighting through those situations.
1: Say it again, K Ray. I'm sorry. I I just got some bad news on.
0: So just say something. Yeah, no. I just if you can just share the importance for for those watching and listening, the importance of betting on yourself and and. You know, understanding that there will be setbacks and moments, but being able to to fight through those um, and not constantly question yourself and picking yourself up off the floor and and yeah. continue to fight through.
1: Well, man, I grew up like that, man. I mean, like for me, I, I've been hardened, I've been conditioned. Uh, like I said, I've been bullied. I've been attacked by games. I lost my brother, my favorite brother, and when I was 18 years old. I went through depression for an entire year. Didn't even know if I wanted to play college basketball after that. Uh, my dad walked out of my life at uh, 13. Uh, There's just so many things, man, that just, it, what it did, it put a drive into me that makes me push forward, man. And the one thing I've learned, Nobody will be able to, one, take my joy, and they will not be able to deter me from doing what I want to do. I do whatever I want to do. I sat down one day. I said, Eddie, you're going to write a book. People laughed at me. they like, you can't write no book. You've never written a book. I said, by the way, I'm going to learn how to, to, to produce my own book. <clears throat> I'm not going to go to a publishing company. I'm going to publish it myself. I'm going to learn how to do it myself. And I did, and my book was very successful, still making money to this day. You big dummy. I'm on the cover. Okay. <laughs> Amazon. And, you know, I sat down, I did a 90 minute instructional video that is still very popular. Okay. Amongst young kids. Uh, I, I, I they told me I couldn't do successful camps. I did camp for three years after I retired. I had a, a training academy that did well. Anything that somebody has told me that I can't do, I throw it back in their face and I go for it. People have told me time and time again that, oh, you wouldn't be able to sit up and be an MC or talk. You know, you're an analyst. Hmm, I do a lot of MCs now. I got to turn down opportunities now to go to large large, uh, situations where they got events and they're asking me to be the MC. Not the analyst, not the analyst, but the MC, right? Uh, By the way, I MC the governor's inauguration. I mean, like, I never knew, man, that, like, I would be able to do the thing that I've done uh, in this situation. Uh, But but one thing I did know, if I decided I wanted to, nobody's going to stop me from trying. And that has just been my mindset, man. That has been my mindset, you know, throughout this life of mine. It's like, yeah. You know, I mean, I'm from the city of Chicago, but you know what? I got my damn degree just like you.
0: Well, and and look, ultimately, it becomes a situation where rather than being paralyzed by the fear of failure or setback, you're you, you're bringing a fearlessness of I, I will find a way to succeed.
1: Yeah, Go and do it.
0: And yeah, yeah. All right. The final uh, segment here on our Breakthrough Chronicles is an opportunity for our guests. We like to call it Pay It Forward. And this provides an opportunity for our guests to, to share an initiative, a cause, a charity, something that is important to them, something that they are a part of personally, professionally. And so with that, uh, Mr. Johnson, I'll let you to take it away. I've got a feeling I, I know what cause, what initiative you want to talk about.
1: Without a doubt. But it's one, it's an infomercial I want to throw out there for one. And one is I am in the process of, and you're a golfer and you understand it, I'm in the process of creating a, a golf app. It's called Combat Golf. It's going to be out here maybe in about four or five months. been working on it two, three years. And it's going to improve the appointment application to start a golf round. That's all it is. You know, like if you call guys up for tea times, I don't say oh, I can't play this day, can't play that day. This is a networking golf app that will allow golfers to play with golfers they love to play with seven days a week. And and that's what I want to say about that. That has my heart right now. That's what I'm really immersed in. Okay. Yeah. Yearly is, is 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 for my mom. And this is helping hand for single moms. Like this is my baby. Uh, I met the the founder of this organization, Chris Kaufman, about nine years ago, and I've been looking for something to really give back. You can't give you can't take it with you. No, you all behind a hearse, and I've been trying to find something that I feel like brings joy to my heart. No pun intended. My wife's name is Joy, uh, but you do bring joy too, sweetie, uh, to help single moms. My mom didn't get a chance to go to college because she was raising seven kids. My mom didn't get that opportunity. But I'm giving females an opportunity to be the heroes in their home uh, and and for a worthy cause. We have a tremendous event every year. You can go to HelpingHandsForSingleMoms.org and check it out. Golf tournament, uh, poker tournament, uh, huge dinner. Uh, we, I think we're going to we're gonna roast one of your favorites this year. I might as well throw it out there. Tommy Gunn, Tom Chamber.
0: Tommy Gunn, I love it. Okay.
1: He's submitted to be roasted this year. And so <laughs> that's going to be fun. And we do it in October, October the 13th weekend. Uh, so it's a tremendous weekend at Talking Stick Resort. And so this will be our ninth or tenth year. We've raised over a million plus dollars to send – Single moms to school to be the heroes in their home, and that—that that to me, man, is to give back to my mom who didn't get that chance.
0: Yeah. All right. So, for those of you watching, listening, we'll have the address uh, posted up there so you can log on, find out more information, and maybe you want to get involved. And at the very least, maybe find you out there at the at the golf tournament. All right, brother, that's going to wrap it up. I cannot thank you enough. I feel like we could talk another hour about uh, about your, your story, your, your stories. But uh, you've got some work to do yourself. But thank you so much for being the inaugural guest here on Breakthrough Chronicles. And hopefully we've had uh, found a way to inspire, inform, and more importantly, motivate somebody watching or listening here today.
1: Well, hopefully I'm the first, and then I'm maybe the 21st, and then the 51st. So, and then the hundred first, okay? So, I'll be a part of your show forever. Congratulations. We'll,
0: we'll christen it along the way. All right. Thanks, my man.